your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. I've never said that before. <laughs> Genesis 1 in a teaching environment. Uh, you can see the uh, logo up there. You can't really see the print underneath it. This is the flyer that was sent out to some 2,900 homes this last week. And so again, encourage you to continue to pray that God would use that in the lives of those homes that have seen that and given consideration to it. So as we look at the opening verse in Genesis today, in the beginning, um, in my opinion, the book of Genesis, especially these first three chapters, are the most difficult book to teach in all of the Bible. And it's not because it's overly complicated or that it's filled with technical languages or ideas, but because its contents are challenged by virtually every aspect of our society today. Not just in our current culture here in the United States, but all over the world, and not just in this era But for hundreds and perhaps even thousands of years, there's been a challenge to what the Bible has so clearly articulated for us. So we will explore the truth set out for us in Genesis, as well as compare and contrast these teachings with what our modern beliefs are being perpetrated towards us in our society today. My approach will be to teach the biblical account of Genesis, as well as apologetically defend This biblical record. Now this task presents to me at least three significant challenges for number one. Many, many decades there have been many, many scholars and theologians and authors and teachers and others that have dedicated the entirety of their adult life to the study, the explanation of the book of Genesis. It is impossible for one to say everything they could say or should say in teaching these incredibly important foundational truths that we find in Genesis. As it is, I am neither a scholar or theologian or an author (laughs) or one that has dedicated the entirety of one's adult life to the study of Genesis, so I start on this journey well behind the curve. (laughs) And I'll just admit that in the very beginning here. Secondly, the creation account identifies the who and the how of creation. And for centuries... The world of science has set out to create its own version of the beginning of all things. There are entire fields of scientific study that are dedicated to try to determine the how of creation, and virtually every scientific field has been affected by this pursuit of attempting to explain the origin of all things. The field of natural sciences, physics, geology, biology, astronomy, and there are subsets of each of these categories that all address in some form or fashion the beginning of all things. As it is, I'm an expert in absolutely zero of these categories (laughs) and have absolutely no qualifications to speak authoritatively on their subject matter. Nonetheless, I can compare and contrast their findings with the biblical record with the help of these many scholars and theologians and authors and others who have dedicated the entirety of their adult life in support of this biblical creation account. So I will attempt to do so throughout our study and provide as much detail as seems necessary. That leads me to this third challenge, and that is sifting through the mountains of information and presenting on a weekly basis a thoughtful, thorough message that is, one, pleasing to God, two, is instructive to those that hear it, and thirdly, beneficial 
to those that are capable of hearing this. So as we begin our study of Genesis, we always start with a little bit of an introduction. So the book of Genesis, the authorship is widely attributed to Moses. Throughout all of Judaism and even through much of the 20th and 21st century, Moses as the author has been widely accepted. It is coming into more and more challenge with each passing decade as we move away from the actual authorship date. He's widely understood to be the author of the first five books of the Bible. The instruction came from God to Moses in the giving of the Ten Commandments as well as the book of the covenant. And we would find these verses in the Bible in support of this in Exodus chapter 20 verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying, saying these things to Moses with the expectation he would, that he would communicate these things to the nation of Israel. Similarly in Leviticus 1.1, then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, and then God would go on and have this extensive dialogue that Moses would write down and then communicate to the nation of Israel. And then we see a little bit more detail here in an explanation of the purpose of this writing in Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, write down these words for in accordance with these words I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. So it's widely understood that Moses was the recipient of the inspiration from God to chronicle the history of the nation of Israel and even before that into the book of Genesis. Jesus frequently mentioned or referenced the writings of Moses. In fact, after his resurrection, as he was walking down the road to Emmaus and came across these two individuals who were very, very bothered by what they had witnessed in Jerusalem at Jesus' crucifixion, we read this account in the Gospel of Luke, then beginning with Moses, and with all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself and all the Scripture. So as you look at this explanation, Jesus, beginning with Moses, the writings of Moses, taking that all the way through the teachings of the prophets, explaining to these two seekers who he actually was and how all of these prophecies were fulfilled in his life. But perhaps the most significant reference that Jesus mentions is one that details the regulations regarding Jewish circumcision. This detailed description was given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 17. And as Jesus brings this up to the audience that is before him that day, he says this in John chapter 7, For this reason Moses has given you circumcision. John's parenthetical statement is, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. So what Jesus has actually done in referencing the detail of circumcision given to Abraham and instructed to the Jewish people by Moses, it affirms in Jesus' understanding that Moses is in fact the author of Genesis, communicating to the nation of Israel these things, these things taught in Genesis as his responsibility to teach to the nation of Israel. So the internal testimony of authorship is widely attributed to Moses, including Jesus himself. The date of the book of Moses is generally thought to be post-Exodus. If you think about this, prior to Moses arriving on the scene and being used by God to call out a unique people that would become his people, Moses is the one that oversees the 
birth of the nation of Israel that was promised all the way back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. So it is widely understood that Moses, as the author, communicates after the Exodus and probably during the wilderness wanderings, this history of not only the people of Israel up to that point, but also the account inspired by God to Moses of the beginning of all things and all that is contained in the book of Genesis. God simply gives to Moses through inspiration an account of the beginning of all things. And the last thing that we look as a part of this introduction is the theme of Genesis, and that is very simply God. Now, we can say generically that all of the Bible is about God, but nowhere is that more pronounced than in the book of Genesis. This theme of God being central to Genesis is established in the very first sentence, and it is carried out through the first chapter where the name for God, Elohim, is repeated 35 times in this opening chapter. The entirety of the book of Genesis is about God. It is He is that theme, as well as throughout all of the Bible itself. Now, we could get into the motifs, the literary style, many, many other elements that are related to Genesis, especially in these opening verses, but we will not do so. This is a discretionary decision that I am making about a mountain of information that I personally don't want to go into. I don't find as much value in our brief period of time together on a Sunday morning. You, by all means, are encouraged to investigate as much as you are interested in learning these things. So the authorship, the date, and the theme having been established as we look into our beginning of the study of Genesis. We begin with Genesis 1.1, and that's all we're going to get to today is Genesis 1.1. And it very simply says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in all honesty, we could spend hours dissecting these these ten words in the English, this very simple sentence where, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But I want to highlight three truths that are introduced here that are very, very important and are, in fact, carried out through much of the Bible. The first one is this. God is real. Now, in the beginning, God, that's a no-brainer for us, right? Christians widely understand that God was in the beginning, that God is the theme of the Bible, that God is the one that has created all things. And so we would say, of course, God is real. He is real because I believe that He is real. And I believe in the biblical account that begins in Genesis and goes all the way through the end to the, to the book of Revelation. So while most people believe in the idea of a God, most do not agree with the identity of this God being the one true God. And so it's necessary because of the varied understandings of a particular audience that we in fact state very, very clearly that God is real. Beyond that, God has made himself knowable. God is personal. God desires to enter into relationship with us. And we could go on and on and on in a further dissection of what we would understand to mean when we say God is real. 
Every religious belief system has an identity assigned to their little g-god, and many have a version of the creation account. But as you read through Genesis and the Bible as a whole, you find a consistent and a coherent explanation of God's true identity. What is introduced, introduced to us here as Elohim, God will come to have many, many names that will enhance our understanding of who He is and how we can relate to Him and what it is He has done for us. And so there's a number of names that we could investigate and explore for at least an hour that would help us understand more accurately what it means for us to say that God is real. Now, the Hebrew word Elohim is first used here, and it is repeated all throughout the Old Testament, and it is in this very first verse that we are introduced to the mystery of the Trinity. Now, in, as we read this in the, in the English, it is not obvious to us that the Trinity is in fact implied here, but it is. The word Elohim is in the plural form which indicates that God is introducing to us what is later revealed as the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Later in the creation account, this becomes much more clear when God says, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image, according to our, plural, likeness. Not obvious in Genesis 1-1, the, ver- the plural form of the word Elohim, but it is in fact introduced to us here very, very subtly, but because we don't know Hebrew, it's not so obvious to us. So what is emphatic in one twenty six is very, very subtle in one one. and again, we could go on and on and on in dissecting what we, what we come to understand when we say that God is real. Secondly, God is eternal. The phrase, in the beginning, highlights for us the beginning of time, not the beginning of God. God has always been. There has never been a time when God did not exist. And so in this opening phrase, in the beginning, what it does is it introduces to us the concept of time that is unique to mankind and irrelevant to God. We would read in the Bible that a day is, a, is like a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is like a day. There is no concept of time for God. A concept of time is indicated for us in this opening phrase, and it begins to get explained and articulated through the creation account, which we will explore and investigate as we go through this in chapter 1. So for many, this is a very difficult concept to grasp, That there has never been a time when God did not exist. God has existed in eternity past. Because for us, everything has a beginning. Right? We have a beginning. My understanding of my family history has a beginning. The birth of the United States has a beginning. Our understanding of world history has a beginning. But God has no beginning. God has no end. And it's an incredibly difficult time, or excuse me, a very, very difficult thing for our finite mind to grasp that God has always been. There's never been a time when God did not exist. When I became a Christian at the age of 23 out of a very heathen background, didn't know anything about the Bible, In my estimation, the first difficult or profound question that I actually verbalized in the days following my uh, conversion was, 
Well, where did God come from? I mean, to me, that was just, wow. I mean, that was... I'm going to really challenge you. Where did God come from? And the answer I was given was very, very straightforward and very, very simple. And it was simply this. God has always been. And I paused for a moment and I said, oh, okay. I guess that settles it. God has always been. I didn't challenge it. I didn't dissect it. I didn't try to prove it or disprove it. But I simply agreed by faith that God has always been. It wasn't my responsibility, my prerogative to try to prove or disprove that, to come to an understanding that God has always been. We read this throughout the Bible and these verses just, to me personally, bring me to a point where I recognize the complete otherness of God. We read this in Psalm 92. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Deuteronomy 33:27a The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms communicating to us this eternal God is personal and relatable he's a place of refuge a place where we can actually find rest and peace in him Revelation 22:13 Jesus says I am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end But because this reality cannot be satisfactorily explained or proven to some, they conclude that God isn't eternal, nor is God even real. And so man in this finite capability given to us to understand the infinite will often come to a conclusion that says, because I can't understand it because I can't prove it or because I can't disprove it, I will just discount it. Because after all, I am more intelligent than this alleged divine being that I can't prove or disprove actually exists. Does man really think that he is smart enough to find God or prove God apart from the Holy Spirit? Does man really think that he can figure out the thoughts or the ways of man of God in a way that enables him to understand his eternal existence. Paul would articulate in 1 Corinthians 2.11, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? In the contrast, even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the capital S, Spirit of God. And what Paul implies here is that God gives to us through our faith in Him. Isaiah would write in chapter 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And if that is the truth then how can we ever believe that we can discount the existence of an eternal God simply because we can't explain it nor could we understand it? Man's awareness of this eternal God begins with this very simple phrase in Genesis 1.1, "...in the beginning." When time as we know it began, and before that, there was no concept of time. 
So God is real. God is eternal. The third truth that we pulled out of this opening verse is God is creator. Now, the word that is used here in the Hebrew is used exclusively for the idea that God creates. It is used exclusively in our, in our understanding that only God creates. Nowhere else is this word ever used. It is reserved exclusively to communicate that God and God alone is the one that creates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. He created this planet that we walk on. He created the universe that this planet exists in. And it isn't a coincidence that 27 of the 66 books of the Bible reference God's creative work through dozens and dozens and dozens of verses. God as Creator is the first mountain of information that requires our significant sifting And even that will not be close to being exhaustive in order for us to understand all the nuances and all the dynamic of what it means when we say God is creator. So the existence of God and the work of God as creator is almost universally challenged in the field of science. You need to understand that, underscore that in our thinking The existence of God and the work of God as creator is almost universally challenged in the field of science. It is impossible for me to say everything that could be said or should be said on this subject, but I won't just ignore it or gloss over it. We will spend the remainder of our time looking at this reality. So I will oversimplify this contrast. This is in your sermon notes, and this is where we must, we must decide. This is the fulcrum of how we understand creation. Mankind either believes in a supernatural creation event, or mankind believes in a natural creation event. You cannot have your foot on both sides of the seesaw. It is either supernatural Or it is natural. It is either understood and explained through the biblical revelation, or it is not explained or understood through the biblical revelation. A natural creation event, or the scientific position of naturalism, is the chief opponent of a supernatural creation event. There's really not any room for a middle ground here. Here's a a very broad definition of what is meant by naturalism. And again, we could spend a lot of time breaking this down. Naturalism is the view that every law and every force operating in the universe is natural rather than moral, spiritual, or supernatural. Naturalism is inherently anti-theistic, rejecting the very concept of a personal God. That is a very broad description or definition of what naturalism is. We could even break that down in more simplistic ways to say this. Generally speaking, naturalists deny the existence of God and they deny a supernatural event that would explain creation. Modern naturalism 
to no surprise, is a byproduct of Darwin's origin of species, which contained his theory of evolution, which was introduced in 1859. Evolution, or natural crea- or a natural creation event, cannot and will not be scientifically proven. Now, why can I say that? Well, in reality, it is a philosophical position because science deals with what can be observed and reproduced in, or excuse me, by experimentation. So therefore, naturalism's rejection of God, naturalism's rejection of a supernatural creation event, and their position that there is no God, it's a natural creation event, cannot be proved, and it will not be proved because the origin of life cannot be observed, it cannot be reproduced in in any laboratory. I asked Ken about this before I decided to embark on this study of Genesis, and I recounted to him my understanding of this. You've heard of the empirical method, right? The empirical method is the hallmark of science. The empirical method is what I can observe and what I can replicate in a laboratory setting. Creation cannot be observed. Why? Because creation happened before there was any man. Creation happened before there was any matter. It cannot be experienced, it cannot be observed, it cannot be replicated in any scientific setting. Therefore, the base conclusion of naturalism cannot be proven, and it will not be proven, because it can't be observed or replicated in a laboratory setting. One of the most well-known and influential naturalists was a man by the name of Carl Sagan, who died in 1996. Carl Sagan hosted a popular TV show called Cosmos, and he would say on nearly every episode, quote, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. That was Sagan's hallmark position as a naturalist. And the problem with that statement is that it is not only rooted in a faith-based conclusion that there is no God, but it is impossible to study all that is, or ever was, or ever will be, with any scientific method. What Carl Sagan actually was made famous for saying is his philosophical speculative conclusion on his naturalistic understanding of the origin of all things. But Sagan was heralded as a naturalist hero and was followed by droves of modern scientists who bought everything Sagan said hook, line, and sinker. By contrast of Sagan's understanding that the cosmos is all that is and all that ever will be, it is estimated by astronomers conservatively that more than 95% of our universe is unknown and unknowable. Think about this. Man has been to the moon, walked on the moon, explored the moon. Man has put a space station out there in space in the heavens that rotates around the earth 
over and over and over, and they have manned that space station with the most powerful telescopes that the world has ever seen. And these telescopes have looked into galaxies that transmit their light over billions of light years, which is not the same thing as a calendar year. And they look at those things, and you know what? They can't get to them. They can't visit them. It is estimated that it would take hundreds of years to get to Mars. And what has naturalistic science concluded in our exploration of Mars from millions of light years away? Well, there was water there, and there had to have been life there. We knew we weren't alone. But they can't observe it. They can't prove it. They certainly can't replicate it. But people buy it hook, line, and sinker because they spew scientific jargon that people don't understand. And they go, well, these guys are the experts. What they're saying must be true. It must be right. I thought there might be UFOs out there. I thought there might be life on Mars after all. And by golly, if there's life on Mars, certainly there's life billions of light years away. It's the hook, line, and sinker of philosophic speculation rooted in a denial of a God and the denial of a supernatural creation event. Naturalists today spew the Big Bang as fact when it's nothing more than speculative theory. Nobody observed the Big Bang. Nobody can replicate the Big Bang. The Big Bang is not widely agreed upon in all of the nuances of what that actually was. And so naturalism has its birth in the theory of evolution. And here's what's interesting about the theory of evolution, and we could talk about this ad nauseum. No species has ever been observed transitioning from one species to another. And the proverbial missing link has never ever been found. Fossils and artifacts have been found that allegedly prove this transitional state. And later it has been revealed that it was a hoax from Piltdown Man to Nebraska Man. Nothing has ever been proven. The most heralded archaeological or geological study is known as Lucy. Lucy is about 40% of a completed skeleton, and it has been speculated that Lucy lived 3.2 million years ago, and based upon the 40% of the skeletal remains that they have found, they have concluded that this is in fact the missing link that this shows the transition from ape man to man and they've even recently said as recent, as recent as 2016 that they now know how Lucy has died they have x-rayed the 40% of the skeletal remains and Lucy fell out of a tree landed on her feet and they have graphically demonstrated how that has happened And so Lucy, from 3.2 million years ago, proof of the missing link, died by falling out of a tree. The problem is, many, many famous evolutionists say, that's just a chimpanzee, that's an ape. It's not a transition. It isn't what you're purporting it to be. Never, ever, ever has the missing link been found, and never, ever, ever will the missing link be found, because evolution 
is a speculative theory that is rooted in the denial of the existence of a God and the denial of a supernatural creation event. Yet evolution is taught and believed as fact, even though it never has been and it never will be observed. Isn't it just mystifying that especially in the last 100 to 150 years, those who hold to a biblical understanding of creation have been reduced to idiots who will believe anything and have, quote-unquote, rejected science in the name of philosophical religion. That's what they basically have concluded. So in thinking about creation, there are several important questions that must be answered. These are critically important. I did not create these, but here are these questions. Here's the truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what? And, and, and so to deny that means there's a big bang, right? That's that's the option. That's the predominant theory. So what was the first cause that caused everything else? Where did matter come from? Where did energy come from? What holds everything together, and what keeps everything going? How could life, self-consciousness, and rationality evolve from inanimate, inorganic matter? Who designed the many complex and interdependent organisms and sophisticated ecosystems that we observe? Where did intelligence originate? Are we to think of the universe as a massive perpetual motion apparatus with some sort of impersonal intelligence of its own? Those are the fundamental questions that relate to creation. So if if one is to believe in the Big Bang, where did all of the matter come from That created the bang. Where did the energy come from that caused that big bang? And how could that big bang create intelligent life from inorganic matter? How do you answer that question? Well, you see, back in the days when there was... The atoms and photons and other things circulate around in scientific mumbo-jumbo and scientific mumbo-jumbo, and you go, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're saying. And therefore, that proves... Blah, 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 blah. Oh, okay, well, I, I guess you're right. Who am I to say you're not right? One of the analogies that has been given over and over and over, and I, 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 it's limited, but I think it makes a lot of sense. If you were to take the wristwatch on your arm and take it apart into its dozens and dozens of pieces and put it into a box and shake it vigorously for a minute. What do you think the chance is that you would open the lid of that box and behold, there is your watch. And all you got to do is strap it on your wrist and say, man, this thing keeps good time. It's been in that box for you know, a couple of days and I've shaken it around big and nothing's broken. It didn't lose a second. What's, what are the odds of that? Thinking about the world that we live in, Gravity is perfectly formulated so that the earth doesn't implode or it doesn't spin out of control and everything just disintegrates. 
the axis of the earth that it spins around is perfectly originated for life to exist on the earth. There are hundreds of very clearly, intentionally orchestrated elements that makes life on this earth possible, and yet the naturalist says it just exploded out of nothing, and it's just amazing. The naturalist has no answer for all of these questions that are central to understanding our explanation of the origin of all things. But the faith-based creationist does. There is an eternal God who created it all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible tells us why man and science have rejected God as creator. And the Bible also gives to us God's response to this rejection. Now, this is a very lengthy passage and one that you're going to be familiar with. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile and their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This biblical truth was authored 2,000 years before the theory of evolution or the idea behind naturalism was ever perpetrated onto the minds of men through modern science. The result of mankind's rejection of God as Creator continues to be explained to us in the same passage of Scripture. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Do you know what would make naturalists and evolutionists more happy in their lives than they've ever been before? To have the church today censured 
and abolished and eradicated so that there is no challenge to their speculative conclusions that are rooted in the denial of a God and denial of a supernatural creation event. And what they want is for us to just shut up and leave the world alone and live out our miserable lives in seclusion. What the naturalist says is that nobody multiplied by nothing equals everything. (laughs) Isn't that ridiculous? Nobody multiplied by nothing equals everything. So what we need to remember is this. The majority of mankind denies God as creator and the modern field of science has simply come to their conclusions as a result of their perspective that there is no God and the origin of all things happened accidentally, naturally, and we will explore in more details this creation event explained to us in the Bible in the days ahead. Well, there's a lot here and more than I can ever get to, but I hope that this at least encourages you to think more objectively about what is presented as expert truth and fact from those that are incredibly smart and evaluate that against the truth of the Bible. Some years ago, I was given a CD, or a DVD rather, that dealt with creation of God from an academic perspective, and it took the simplest form of life, bacteria, and explored it and studied it under a microscope, and it is absolutely amazing. The most simple form of life, bacteria. It has a motor. It has direction. It feeds. It expels. It grows. And we're to think that our complex, interdependent bodies evolved from inanimate matter to the point that the miracle of creation that exists in our bodies can be explained by something other than an eternal God that chose to create in His wisdom and in His power this rational, self-conscious life to know Him and to give Him glory. Would you pray with me, please?